Book One, Sections Fifteen through Seventeen of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book One, The Domain of King Cole, Section Fifteen. Old Mike boarded at Reminitsky's, and after supper was over, Hal sought him out. He was easy to know and proved an interesting acquaintance. With the help of his eloquence, Hal wandered through a score of camps in the district. The old fellow had a temper that he could not manage, and so he was always on the move. But all places were alike, he said. There was always some trick by which a miner was cheated of his earnings. A miner was a little business man, a contractor who took a certain job, with its expenses and its chance of profit or loss. A place was assigned to him by the boss, and he undertook to get out the coal from it, being paid at the rate of fifty-five cents a ton for each ton of clean coal. In some places a man could earn good money, and in others he could work for weeks and not be able to keep up with his store account. It all depended upon the amount of rock and slate that was found with the coal. If the vein was low, the man had one or two feet of rock to take off the ceiling, and this had to be loaded on separate cars and taken away. This work was called brushing, and for it the miner received no pay. Or perhaps it was necessary to cut through a new passage and clean out the rock, or perhaps to grade the bottom and lay the ties and rails over which the cars were brought in to be loaded. Or perhaps the vein ran into a fault, a broken place where there was rock instead of coal, and this rock must be hewed away before the miner could get at the coal. All such work was called dead work, and it was the cause of unceasing war. In the old days the company had paid extra for it. Now, since they had got the upper hand of the men, they were refusing to pay. And so it was important to the miner to have a place assigned him where there was not so much of this dead work. And the place a man got depended upon the boss. So here, at the very outset, was endless opportunity for favoritism and graft, for quarreling or keeping in with the boss. What chance did a man stand who was poor and old and ugly, and could not speak English good? inquired old Mike with bitterness. The boss stole his cars and gave them to other people. He took the weight off the cars and gave them to fellows who boarded with him or treated him to drinks or otherwise curried favor with him. I work five days in the southeastern, said Mike, and when I work them five days, so help me God, brother, if I don't get up out of this chair, fifteen cents I was still in the hole yet. Fourteen inches of rock! And the Mr. Bishop, that is the superintendent, I says, Do you pay something for that rock? Huh? says he. Well, I says, If you don't pay nothing for the rock, I don't go ahead with it. I ain't got no place to put that rock. Get the hell out of here, says he. And when I start to fight, he pull gun on me. And then I go to Cedar Mountain, and the super give me work there, and he says, You go number four. And he says, Rail is in number three, and the ties. And he says, I pay you for it when you put it in. So I take it away and I put it in, and I work till twelve o'clock. Carried the three pair of rails and the ties, and I pulled all the spikes. Pulled the spikes? asked Hal. Got no good spikes. Got to use old spikes. 
what you pull out of them old ties. So then I says, what is my half day, what you promise me? Says he, you ain't dug no coal yet. But mister, says I, you promise me to pay to pull them spikes and put in them ties. Says he, company pay nothing for dead work, you know that, says he, and that is all the satisfaction I get. And you didn't get your half day's pay? Sure, I get nothing. Boss do just as he please in coal mine. End of section 15 Section 16 There was another way, old Mike explained, in which the miner was at the mercy of others. This was the matter of stealing cars. Each miner had brass checks with his number on them, and when he sent up a loaded car, he hung one of these checks on a hook inside. In the course of the long journey to the tipple, someone would change the check, and the car was gone. In some mines the number was put on the car with chalk, and how easy it was for someone to rub it out and change it. It appeared to Hal that it would have been a simple matter to put a number padlock on the car, instead of a check, but such an equipment would have cost the company one or two hundred dollars, he was told, and so the stealing went on year after year. "'You think it's the bosses steal these cars?' asked Hal. "'Sometimes bosses, sometimes bosses' friend, sometimes company himself steal them from miners.' In North Valley it was the company, the old Slovak insisted. It was no use sending up more than six cars in one day, he declared. You could never get credit for more than six. Nor was it worth while loading more than a ton on a car. They did not really weigh the cars, the boss just ran them quickly over the scales, and had orders not to go above a certain average. Mike told of an Italian who had loaded a car for a test, so high that he could barely pass it under the roof of the entry, and went up on the tipple and saw it weighed himself, and it was sixty-five hundred pounds. They gave him thirty-five hundred, and when he started to fight they arrested him. Mike had not seen him arrested, but when he had come out of the mine the man was gone and nobody ever saw him again. After that they put a door onto the weigh-room so that no one could see the scales. The more Hal listened to the men and reflected upon these things, the more he came to see that the miner was a contractor who had no opportunity to determine the size of the contract before he took it on, nor afterwards to determine how much work he had done. More than that, he was obliged to use supplies, over the price and measurements of which he had no control. He used powder and would find himself docked at the end of the month for a certain quantity, and if the quantity was wrong, he would have no redress. He was charged a certain sum for blacksmithing, the keeping of his tools in order, and he would find a dollar or two deducted from his account each month, even though he had not been near the blacksmith shop. Let any business man in the world consider the proposition, thought Hal, and say if he would take a contract upon such terms. Would a man undertake to build a dam, for example, with no chance to measure the ground in advance, nor any way of determining how many cubic yards of concrete he had to put in? Would a grocer sell to a customer who proposed to come into the store and do his own weighing, and meantime locking the grocer outside? 
Merely to put such questions was to show the preposterousness of the thing, yet in this district were fifteen thousand men working on precisely such terms. Under the state law, the miner had a right to demand a check-wayman to protect his interest at the scales, paying this check-wayman's wages out of his own earnings. Whenever there was any public criticism about conditions in the coal-mines, this law would be triumphantly cited by the operators, and one had to have actual experience in order to realize what a bitter mockery this was to the miner. In the dining-room Hal sat next to a fair-haired Swedish giant named Johansson, who loaded timbers ten hours a day. This fellow was one who indulged in the luxury of speaking his mind, because he had youth and huge muscles and no family to tie him down. He was what is called a blanket-stiff, wandering from mine to harvest-field and from harvest-field to lumber-camp. Someone broached the subject of check-waymen to him, and the whole table heard his scornful laugh. Let any man ask for a check-waymen. You mean they would fire him? asked Hal. Maybe, was the answer. Maybe they make him fire himself. How do you mean? They make his life one damn misery till he go. So it was with check-waymen, as with scrip, and with company stores, and with all the provisions of the law to protect the miner against accidents. You might demand your legal rights, but if you did, it was a matter of the boss's temper. He might make your life one damn misery till you went of your own accord. Or you might get a string of curses and an order, Down the canyon! And likely as not the toe of a boot in your trousers seat, or the muzzle of a revolver under your nose. End of section 16 Section 17 Such conditions made the coal district a place of despair. Yet there were men who managed to get along somehow, and to raise families and keep decent homes. If one had the luck to escape accident, if he did not marry too young, or did not have too many children, if he could manage to escape the temptations of liquor, to which overwork and monotony drove so many, if, above all, he could keep on the right side of his boss, why then he might have a home, and even a little money on deposit with the company. Such a one was Jerry Minetti, who became one of Hal's best friends. He was a Milanese, and his name was Girolamo, which had become Jerry in the melting pot. He was about twenty-five years of age, and, what is unusual with the Italians, was of good stature. Their meeting took place, as did most of Hal's social experiences, on a Sunday. Jerry had just had a sleep and a wash, and had put on a pair of new blue overalls, so that he presented a cheering aspect in the sunlight. He walked with his head up and his shoulders square, and one could see that he had few cares in the world. But what caught Hal's attention was not so much Jerry as what followed at Jerry's heels. A perfect reproduction of him, quarter size, also with a newly washed face and a pair of new blue overalls. He, too, had his head up and his shoulders square, and he was an irresistible object, throwing out his heels and trying his best to keep step. 
since the longest strides he could take left him behind, he would break into a run, and getting close under his father's heels, would begin keeping step once more. Hal was going in the same direction, and it affected him like the music of a military band. He too wanted to throw his head up and square his shoulders and keep step. And then other people, seeing the grin on his face, would turn and watch, and grin also. But Jerry walked on gravely, unaware of this circus in the rear. They went into a house, and Hal, having nothing to do but enjoy life, stood waiting for them to come out. They returned in the same procession, only now the man had a sack of something on his shoulder, while the little chap had a smaller load poised in imitation. So Hal grinned again, and when they were opposite him he said, "'Hello!' "'Hello!' said Jerry, and stopped. Then, seeing Hal's grin, he grinned back, and Hal looked at the little chap and grinned, and the little chap grinned back. Jerry, seeing what Hal was grinning at, grinned more than ever, so there stood all three in the middle of the road, grinning at one another for no apparent reason. "'Gee, but that's a great kid,' said Hal. "'Gee, you bet,' said Jerry, and he sat down his sack. If someone desired to admire the kid, he was willing to stop any length of time. "'Yours?' asked Hal. "'You bet,' said Jerry again. "'Hello, Buster,' said Hal. "'Hello yourself,' said the kid. One could see in a moment that he had been in the melting pot. "'What's your name?' asked Hal. "'Jerry,' was the reply. "'And what's his name?' Hal nodded towards the man. "'Big Jerry.' "'Got any more like you at home?' "'One more,' said Big Jerry. "'Baby.' "'He ain't like me.' said little Jerry. He's little. And you're big? said Hal. He can't walk. Neither can you walk, laughed Hal, and caught him up and slung him onto his shoulder. Come on, we'll ride. So big Jerry took up his sack again, and they started off. Only this time it was Hal who fell behind and kept step, squaring his shoulders and flinging out his heels. Little Jerry caught on to the joke, and giggled and kicked his sturdy legs with delight. Big Jerry would look round, not knowing what the joke was, but enjoying it just the same. They came to the three-room cabin which was both Jerry's home, and Mrs. Jerry came to the door, a black-eyed Sicilian girl who did not look old enough to have even one baby. They had another bout of grinning, at the end of which Big Jerry said, "'You come in?' "'Sure,' said Hal. "'You stay supper,' added the other. "'Got spaghetti?' "'Gee,' said Hal. "'All right, let me stay and pay for it.' "'Hell no,' said Jerry. "'You no pay.' "'No, no pay,' cried Mrs. Jerry, shaking her pretty head energetically. "'All right,' said Hal, quickly, seeing that he might hurt their feelings. "'I'll stay if you're sure you have enough.' "'Sure, plenty,' said Jerry. "'Hey, Rosa?' "'Sure, plenty,' said Mrs. Jerry. "'Then I'll stay,' said Hal. "'You like spaghetti, kid?' "'Jesus!' cried little Jerry. Hal looked about him at this Dago home. It was a home in keeping with its pretty occupant. There were lace curtains in the windows, even shinier and whiter than at the Rafferty's. There was an incredibly bright-colored rug on the floor, 
and bright-colored pictures of Mount Vesuvius and of Garibaldi on the walls. Also there was a cabinet with many interesting treasures to look at, a bit of coral and a conch shell, a shark's tooth and an Indian arrowhead, and a stuffed linnet with a glass cover over him. A while back Hal would not have thought of such things as especially stimulating to the imagination, but that was before he had begun to spend five-sixths of his waking hours in the bowels of the earth. He ate supper, a real dago supper. The spaghetti proved to be real dago spaghetti, smoking hot with tomato sauce and a rich flavor of meat juice. And all through the meal Hal smacked his lips and grinned at little Jerry, who smacked his lips and grinned back. It was all so different from feeding at Reminitsky's pig trough that Hal thought he had never had such a good supper in his life before. As for Mr. and Mrs. Jerry, they were so proud of their wonderful kid, who could swear in English as good as a real American, that they were in the seventh heaven. When the meal was over, Hal leaned back and exclaimed, just as he had at the Rafferty's, "'Lord, how I wish I could board here!' He saw his host look at his wife. "'All right,' said he. "'You come here. I board you. Hey, Rosa?' "'Sure,' said Rosa. Hal looked at them, astonished. "'You're sure they'll let you?' he asked. "'Let me? Who stopped me?' "'I don't know. Maybe Reminitsky. You might get into trouble.' Jerry grinned. "'I no afraid,' said he. "'Got friends here. Carmino, my cousin. You know Carmino?' "'No,' said Hal. "'Pit boss in number one. He stand by me. Old Reminitsky go hang. You come here. I give you bunk in that room. Give you good grub. What you pay Reminitsky?' Twenty-seven a month.' "'All right. You pay me twenty-seven. You get everything good. Can't get much stuff here, but Rosa, good cook. She fix it.' Hal's new friend, besides being a favorite of the boss, was a shot-firer, it was his duty to go about the mine at night, setting off the charges of powder which the miners had got ready by day. This was dangerous work, calling for a skilled man, and it paid pretty well. So Jerry got on in the world, and was not afraid to speak his mind, within certain limits. He ignored the possibility that Hal might be a company spy, and astonished him by rebellious talk of the different kinds of graft in North Valley, and at other places he had worked since coming to America as a boy. Minetti was a socialist, Hal learned. He took an Italian socialist paper, and the clerk at the post office knew what sort of paper it was, and would josh him about it. What was more remarkable, Mrs. Minetti was a socialist also. That meant a great deal to a man, as Jerry explained, because she was not under the domination of a priest. End of section 17